Well, we get to read our scripture lessons today. You know, it says we're reading from 1 Kings and 2 Kings, SV. What in the world does SV mean? Selected verses. It means I selected them. They're too long to put all in there. So just sit back and listen. We're going to read about old Jezebel. And um, if you really want to follow, we'll be in 1 Kings 16, verses, excuse me, 29 through 33, 2 Kings 9, 21 through 26, and then 30 through 20, 37. So 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29 through 33. Listen here to God's word. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worship him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And then we'll skip over to 2 Kings 9, verses 21 through 26 and 30 through 37. Let me set the stage for you just a little bit. The uh, Ahab and and uh, has done bad things, and he has a guy, Jehoram, who's going to come up, and uh, his son has taken his place, and another guy is going to be uh, taken over for him, and, and they're going to, he's going to kill the son of Ahab, and his wife, Jezebel, will survive for a bit. Then Joram said, get ready, and they made his chariot ready for Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, and went out, each in his chariot, and they went out to meet Yehu, that's the guy, and found him in the property of Naboth the Jezreelite. When Joram saw Yehu, he said, is it peace, Yehu? And he answered, what peace so long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many? So Joram reigned about and fled and said to Ahaziah, there is treachery, O Ahaziah. And Yehu drew his bow with full strength and shot Joram between his arms, and the arrow, went, the arrow went through his heart, and he sank in his chariot. Then Yehu said to Bidkar, his officer, Take him up and cast him into the property of the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. For I remember when you and I were riding together after Ahab, his father, that the Lord laid this oracle against him. Surely I have seen yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, says the Lord, and I will repay you on, in this property, says the Lord. Now then... Take and cast him into the property according to the word of the Lord. Then we'll skip to verse 30. When Yehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. As Yehu entered the gate, she said, Is it well, Zimri, your master's murderer? Then he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? And two or three officials looked down at him. He said, throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. When he came in, he ate and drank. 
He said, see now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. They went to bury her, but they found nothing more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Therefore they returned and told him. He said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by the servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, in the property of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. And the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the property of Jezreel, so they cannot say, this is Jezebel. Amen. That sure is encouraging, isn't it? We'll see. It's there. Our uh, <clears throat> next text is from 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verses 8 through 15 or something like that. Let me see. Let me get there. Yes, 8 through 17. Listen here to God's word. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for immoral men, for homosexuals, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. For this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And amen. Then our primary text today is from Revelation chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 18 through 29. This is a message from the Lord Jesus that he sends to the church in Thyatira. Listen here to God's word. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But... I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. 
But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, and as I have also received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. We'll take a few moments just to bow our heads and silently meditate upon God's Word, which we've read. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we do ask for your gracious work in our lives. We've heard your word read. We've sung your praise. Uh, We ask you, Lord, now in your preached word that you would speak, that you would guide and you would help, and that, Lord, we would receive that which is indeed food for our souls. So give us your grace and favor, we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let me uh, project something onto the screen. Can we put that up there right quick, the very first thing I have? Uh, Do you remember this? I've taught this for a number of years here. Uh, The biblical definition of love. We hear about love all the time, and we have a a wrong notion about what love is. Here's the biblical definition of love. I'm sure I got portions of this from all kinds of different people, but I think the the way it is right now is just the way I've, I've done it. To love someone is to choose to do what's best for the other person with God defining best, regardless of the consequences to myself. That's the uh, good biblical definition of love. That's what Jesus exhibits. He did what was best for us uh, when he died on the cross, regardless of the consequences to himself, because that's what we needed, a, a savior, someone to pay our debt. Well, this is the ministry that Jesus has all the time, and that's what he does to the church in Thyatira here in this letter that he sends to them. Uh, He's done this all his ministry. That's what Jesus does. And so we want to examine this this longest of the seven letters, all the letters that Jesus wrote. This is the longest, and it's the one that's right in the very middle of them and sort of uh, points to all of them. So it begins with this, who Jesus is, who is the one who speaks to, to them? He's the Son of God. He identifies himself as the Son of God. This is the only time in the book of Revelation that that particular phrase, the Son of God, is used. But he wants the, the folks in the Thyatira to know this is the Son of God who speaks to them. And uh, think of Psalm 2, verses 6 through 9, which we've memorized 6 and 7. We've not done 8 and 9 yet. But the point is that he rules. He has authority over all the nations, over all these things. He's asked. The Father's given it to him. He's declared, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Tells him to go. So that's the one who speaks to them, the one who rules, the one who is the Son of God. It says, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze. Uh, His gaze, if you would, is like a cutting torch. It cuts through all pretense. It cuts through all falseness. It cuts through all human casuistry. He sees where things really are. You can't hide anything from him. Uh, All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do, right? Yeah, so his eyes are a flame of fire. They pierce and know precisely what's going on. And he has 
burnished bronze feet. Now, the people who lived in Thyatira would know much about bronze. They were a, it's a smaller city and the, the most insignificant city of the, the seven letters there. Um, but they were a, a city of artisans. And one of the things they made were bronze objects. They, they had a, a whole industry in that. And bronze was the harder than the other metals that the people had. And uh, it was able to bear the load. It was able to beat things down, could do all kinds of things. And here Jesus has feet, brownished, burnished bronze, brownished burns. How's that? <laughs> burnished bronze, his feet. That means that he can walk through anything, walk over things, that it's, he's unstoppable in where he goes, is what they need to know. Now this one, this guy like that, the son of God, with eyes and feet like we've said, he has something to say to them. He says, I know your deeds. Now if God comes to you and says, I know your deeds, you quake a little bit, right? Ah, I know my deeds too. But listen to what he says. He says, I know your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance. That's good. I've noted all that. That's that's good stuff. It's positive. Indeed, he says to them, what he does not say to the Ephesians guys, he says, and your latter deeds, your last deeds, are better than your first. You're growing, you're getting better, you're doing well. Hooray, hallelujah, that's good. Uh, the Ephesians, of course, he says, you need to go back and do the first things again. You know, that's not been complete, it's not been done. Um, there's no call here to return to their first love. It's all approbation at this point. But then, but then he said, there's a problem. And it's a big problem. It's this, you tolerate Jezebel. Now Jezebel was not a particular woman named Jezebel who lived in Thyatira. The name is typical. By that being, it points back to show what kind of person in the Bible has been named Jezebel. That's who she's like. So that's why we read from 1 Kings and 2 Kings. That's who Jezebel was. She led into idolatry. She led into sexual immorality. And she experienced the judgment of God in a very severe way. We, we saw that. We read that. And that's a matter of historic fact that we see here. So it's certainly a real person. There's a real woman. We don't know what her name was. But she's a Jezebel is what Jesus says. A real woman in your church, the, the church at Thi- in Thyatira. Uh, so the question becomes, how do you deal with Jezebel? What she says and what she does is worthy of consideration. She refers to herself as a prophetess. Uh, just to say that designation belongs to you is a pretty significant statement. She accepts that, and uh, she's very spiritual. A prophetess would not be someone who's crass or worldly-minded. It's very spiritual. Uh, the talk later on says, 
the deep things, that she has deep things, deep knowledge. But Jesus says it's deep knowledge, deep things of Satan, not of God. Though she wouldn't say that. These are deep things of God. But no, those are, are deep things of Satan, is what Jesus says. And she's very influential. She has the ears, the hearts of a number of people in the church of Thyatira. What Jesus says is that she teaches and leads my bond servants astray. So this is not a trivial matter. This is important. Uh, do you remember the two schemes of the devil we put up last week? Here's scheme number one. Scheme number one, it says, God is not the boss. God's not the one in charge. God doesn't rule. We're just saying our God rules, right? We're combating scheme number one. This is this, down through the ages, down through history, across cultures, across time. That's number one scheme of the devil is God's not in charge. I am. Uh, it says that she, she leads them astray to idolatry. So I have here the question, well, what is idolatry? We don't have any idols here. You don't, I hope you don't have any in your homes, right? So what is idolatry? Here's a good definition. Whoa, back up one. Back up another one. There we go, thank you. They're getting ahead of me. Here's what idolatry is. It's to imagine, that is your thinking process, it's to imagine or to possess, to have hold of something which you put in place of or alongside of, right next to, the one true God who, is, who has revealed himself to us in his word. That's what idolatry is. Anything that competes with or takes a, a stand alongside God. <coughs> Remember what I said? The number one scheme of the devil is to do that very thing. To get us to think that there's someone else in addition to God who rules, namely him. And so people do all sorts of things uh, that are idolatrous. Now, here are some examples. Now we can go ahead. Thank you. For example, number one is what? There's really only one God. So even if we worship a false God, we're still worshiping the one God. It's just that we're using a different name, using a different mechanism. So all worship, if you're just spiritual, that's the main thing. <clears throat> now you realize this is true today. People are say, say this. It doesn't matter. Next example. By taking part in pagan worship, or in some, something that God said no to, by taking part in this, uh, we can witness for the Christian faith or for Christianity. So our participation there in that which God has said, don't do, don't be engaged in this idolatry, we do that so we can bear witness. That's the subtle scheme of the devil, that we worship in these places and, well, no, not so. The next example. Well, we got to do this. You know, it's where we live. We got to go along to get along, right? So there's just things you got to do. That was certainly the case in Thyatira, by the way. There are certain ways that's being effected here in our land now 
for Christian organizations and Christian people. Certain things you must do to go along and get along. Other lands, it's been worse than that for a long time. Okay, have Denny Barger come up here and talk about things in the Middle East. That if you want to compromise your faith to get along, you can, but you do compromise your faith. And if you are steadfast in your faith, there'll be consequences that are negative in your profession, in your life, and where you live, all kinds of things. So we just got to go along to get along is the scheme of the devil. But we, in that, we participate in that which God said no. What's the fourth example? I hope I have another one. All, it's, it's sort of like the first one, all truth is God's truth. So let's quit being so arrogant in our absolutism. Man, I've heard that. Not expressed exactly that way, but, but you know, who do you think you are to say that you have the truth? I'm a servant of Christ from the scriptures. There's a place where we have to say that. Here's the truth, that we, we can't do anything contrary to this. And if what you're saying is contrary to this, well then, no, we, we're absolute about that. I can remember long, 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 long ago, I was in a work situation where I had a, a co-worker who uh, challenged me on that. Were you saying that this is the only way? You saying that, that all the other ways are wrong? I said, yes. <laughs> she said, what? She said right in the back over here, she's my wife. <laughs> and I was worried that I was going to lose my witness. Well, I didn't exactly lose my witness, but I gained a wife. She got converted. But yes, uh, you'll hear this all around, that, that, well, how can you be so, so imperialistic, so absolutist, so arrogant as to say that you have the only way? Because that's what the Bible teaches. There's only one God. There's only one mediator between God and men. There's only one way to, to heaven is through Christ Jesus the Lord. And we need to follow him as Lord of our lives. That, you know, that, that's, that's the gospel. That's what it says. The other or another thing that people say is, well, God knows our hearts. And so he understands. And so all will be well, right? God knows our hearts. Well, that should scare you more than comfort you. God knows our hearts. Here's, here's a verse from Luke. We did Luke eleven thirty five. Can you put that one on up there? Watch out that the light in you is not darkness. A lot of light that people get is darkness. How great it, he'll go on and say, how great is that darkness if the light that's coming in is, is, is actually darkness and we can hear things that we have to discern. We have to know what's going on there. Uh, because our desire when that light in us is darkness is to remake God, not have him remake us. And yet part of what Redemption is what conversion is, is his remaking of us to be who he created us to be because we've strayed and fallen and gone our own way and lived by our own rules or by other rules than his, other truths than his. Now, 
What about scheme two? What's scheme two? A little immorality is just dandy. Now I'm putting this in colloquial terms, all right? You know, a little, a little immorality is not that bad. You know, it's sort of a spice of life. You've got to have a little immorality around, what the heck? You been there? Are you there? I've been there. And worse. What Jesus says is that this Jezebel is leading his servants astray to commit acts of immorality. That's what they're doing. Committing acts of immorality. Well, hold on. I better hurry up, not hold on. (laughs) Who's to say what's immoral and not immoral? Who's to say that? Right? That's what I'm having some people say back to us. Well, how do we know what's moral and what's immoral? The law. Now we're going to quote here from and from, from 1 Timothy uh, that we read, here's what it says. Go ahead. What's the next thing? The law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. That is, they're part of the, this world system. They, they live, that's, that's the world that's opposed to God. They're lawless and they're rebellious. And so what do they need to know about? Go ahead. What's the next thing? Here's a list of the things that are immoral. This is for those who kill fathers or mothers for murderers, for immoral men, for homosexuals, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. That's a little list of immorality. Those things listed on there are wrong. They can never be right. I did another list last week. The the, the Bible has these lists of things that are immoral. We need to love what is right, hate what is evil. We should hate lying. Don't you hate it when you lie? Yeah, I hate it when I lie. Sometimes I lie. Not very often. Praise God. So we must stand by God's standard of morality, raise up a standard of righteousness, regardless of what anyone else says, is what Jesus is telling the church in Thyatira. Why must we stand like this? Here's the great truth for the church in Thyatira and for us. Because God is not what? God is not tolerant. You should write that down. Does everyone think he is? God is not tolerant. God calls us to repentance. He's called this Jezebel to repentance for some time. It says she's not willing. And there will be consequences. God calls all of us to repentance. Now what's repentance? It's this. Confess that you're wrong and have done wrong and ask for forgiveness and for renewal through Christ Jesus. That's repentance. Confess you've been wrong, that you've done wrong. And ask forgiveness through Christ. Now it doesn't matter how deep you've been in sin. It doesn't matter how far you've fallen. God calls for you to repent. And he's able to 
take you and remake you, cleanse, cleanse you, and put you on service for Him. He's able to do that. That's why He calls to repent. He will not tolerate, He's not tolerant of our sin, period. Now, God is not tolerant, but what else? There's another part to here. God is not tolerant, but God is merciful and benevolent. That is, He can forgive and make new, what I just said. So when we say that God is not tolerant, <clears throat> hold on. What we need to know is that God is also merciful and benevolent. He will help us. We read that passage from 1 Timothy 1. We read the part where Paul goes on and says, you know, I'm a perfect example of this. I was a persecutor. I was a blasphemer. I was a violent aggressor. But God, but God changed me, met me, confronted me, dealt with me, saved me, made me new, and sent me on His way. Here's what Paul then proclaims. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I'm the foremost. I, if you look at your own sin, you think, my sin's been greater than all the rest. God saved me. I know my sin. Oh, my goodness. And He can still do that for everyone. Did you hear that Kanye West has been converted? Glory be to God, right? Amen. We pray that'll be true. I've never listened to any of his songs. I don't know what they are. But I understand he was, he, he's married to a Kardashian. Is that right? That already says something. I don't know what. I'll let you decide what it says. But from what I understand, God has come and met him where he was, where he is, and saved him. Now, we got to, remember my, I went home and told my dad I'd been converted. Remember what my dad said? I was 24 years old, more or less 24, almost 24. He said, we'll see. <laughs> Real encouraging. We'll see if you're saved or not. And in due time, he, he did. And we'll see. We're praying for Kanye West. God can save anyone. So, Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, among whom he was the foremost. Here's the next point. Judgment will happen. He talks to the Thyatirians about this. Uh, God is just. Judgment is inevitable. It will happen. To every single person who's ever lived, every culture, it, there will be judgment. Uh, we had the example of Jezebel from the Old Testament. She was very successful. She ruled for a time. A long time sometimes, but she just ruled for a time, and then judgment came. We read about that. Uh, the promise to the Jezebel in the New Testament is the same thing. And this is Jesus, meek and mild Jesus, who's speaking. He says, I'll throw her on a bed. Now we have in, in italics of sickness, that of sickness night is just on a bed. And I think there's some irony there. She who has promoted sexual immorality, I'm going to throw her on a bed. But it's going to be a bed of death. And those who are her followers, those who, who follow after, likewise they will, it says, I will kill her children with, it says pestilence here, but the word is thanatos, it's death. And I think it's the second death. Reminder, the one speaking is the one who 
has eyes of flame and feet like burnished bronze. The one who sees and knows all things, the one who can tread down and nothing can stop him. So here's the exhortation. So hold fast what you have until I come. No tolerance, forbearance, yes. No tolerance, forbearance, yes. You forbear things because God is merciful. Who knows what we'll do, but we won't tolerate that in terms of agreeing with that and following that. So persevere, overcome. He says he has a promise. You will rule with me, the morning star. So here's the conclusion. God loves us. Therefore, he chooses what is best for us. Our definition at the very beginning. He chooses what is best for us, and that's reconciliation through Christ. Now, here's a good verse from Psalm 85, verse 10. Here's what it says. Loving kindness, that is mercy and truth. You realize those two things are on opposite directions. Uh, Loving kindness is mercy. Truth is what bears in and tells us exactly what, what is. Loving kindness and truth have met each other. Righteousness, true righteousness, which if you don't have, you have no peace. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. That's done in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's called reconciliation. It's a wonderful, wonderful promise. So tolerance reconsidered means that loving kindness and truth, though they're on collision course, they've met together and are all right. We can say that what's going on is there, and that righteousness, which we've not had, we do have. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That's it.